0: Tell it to the judge on Sunday. Tell it to him, leave me alone. Tell it to the judge on Sunday, you can call him in who Welcome to Torts Illustrated episode one. I'm your host, Marie. Wait, disclaimer time. I am a lawyer. I am not your lawyer. This show is for fun, and we here on Torts Illustrated do not dispense legal advice. If you want legal advice, hire a lawyer. If you've done something bad enough, the government might even give you one. Okay, now, welcome to Torts Illustrated, where we discuss all things weird and wacky in the law from Old England to today. Since this is our first time together, let's talk a little bit about the format of this podcast. Every week, if you join me here, we'll be talking about some sort of weird, wacky, and wonderful concept in the law. Because I get a little tired of the sound of my own voice, we'll probably have a fair amount of guest stars. Some will be lawyers, some might just be lay people with questions, comments, or concerns. Either way, I think we're all going to learn a lot of fun stuff. And generally, we're going to be doing it just the way that you do in law school, through court cases. Except here, we're going to take the filter off, and we're going to only get into the weirdest and most fun stuff we can find. Since this is the first episode, I'll start you off with a little information about your host. I'm an attorney from the great city of Chicago. I studied creative writing and history in undergrad, which I'm sure, as many of you know, isn't a great way to get an actual job. Since I like to eat, I went to law school. And what I discovered is that the practice of law on a day-to-day basis is kind of boring, but the law itself is completely bonkers. And the reason behind this is simple. The law is all based on solving people's problems, and the solutions are thought up by people, and people are straight up bonkers. Judges might be even more bonkers than the average person, and that's the last time I'm going to say bonkers. Bonkers going to law school is basically being dropped right into a storybook written entirely by all these lunatics. And sure, there are days that are boring when you spend three hours straight discussing what constitutes an offer and what constitutes acceptance when making a verbal contract. And silence falls as half my listeners tune out right there. But there are days when you get cases like the one we're going to talk about today, You walk into your crim class 1L year, and a skinny, mild-mannered professor in badly fitting corduroys tells you with a smile that today we're talking about cannibalism. So today, dear listeners, we're talking about cannibalism. More specifically, the 1884 case of Regina v. Dudley and Stevens. Now, this is actually an English case, which is why it's Regina v. Dudley and Stevens. Regina in this case isn't a person, it's the crown of England. Similar to U.S. criminal cases where the state brings charges, like one you might know, the people of the state of California v. O.J. Simpson. But what did Dudley and Stevens do exactly, and where does cannibalism enter this story? Well, let's take ourselves back to England in the 1800s. Queen Victoria was in power, as well as Prime Minister Edward Gladstone, but perhaps most importantly... At this time in history, English people were still sailing the world for pleasure and for profit. Now, as someone who has a very, I think, reasonable fear of open water and the deep ocean, I don't know a ton about sailing. But what I do know is that it is a dangerous, horrible thing that can definitely go wrong. We've all seen Titanic. We know what happens there. Remember that. We're going to come back to that. So in 1883, an Australian man named John Want bought an English yacht. Like all fancy boats, this yacht had a name, the Minionette. If that's not a pretentious yacht name, I don't know what is. Well done. The problem was, John Want needed his yacht to get to Australia, and the Minionette was really only made for short voyages, so it wasn't exactly equipped to sail all the way from the UK to Australia. Despite this, John Want managed to get a few brave and or really stupid people to sail the Mignonette across the open ocean for him. Tom Dudley was hired to captain the ship, an experienced sailor, and he was accompanied by three people, Stevens, of Regina V. Dudley and Stevens fame, Edmund Brooks, who will not be especially important in this story, and a 17-year-old cabin boy, Richard Parker. Now, in a wildly surprising turn of events, our crew ran into some bad weather and the Mignonette sank shocker. So Dudley, Stevens, non-criminal Brooks, and the Cabin Boy are left adrift in a tiny lifeboat in the middle of the sea with no rescue in sight. Now, just in case you can't imagine exactly how horrible this situation was from my description, let's take a quick read of the facts from the case. In this boat, they had no supply of water and no supply of food, except two one-pound tins of turnips, and for three days they had nothing else to subsist upon. On the fourth day they caught a small turtle, upon which they subsisted for a few days, and this was the only food they had up to the twentieth day, when the act now in question was committed. On the twelfth day the remains of the turtle were entirely consumed, and for the next eight days they had nothing to eat. They had no fresh water, except such rain as from time to time they caught in their oilskin capes, And the boat was drifting on the ocean and was probably more than a thousand miles away from land. Yikes. So as we can tell, these guys were in a pretty bad situation. And having started small with some turtle murder, Dudley and Stevens now turned their very hungry eyes in a different direction, towards the cabin boy. You see, poor Richard wasn't doing so well. He was actually in and out of consciousness in the bottom of the boat. And Dudley suggested that if he wasn't going to live anyway, they might as well kill him and have a little snack, maybe keep themselves going. Brooks objected, but he was eventually overruled. According to the facts of the case, Dudley went to the boy and, telling him that his time has come, put a knife into his throat and killed him, then and there. And the three men fed upon the body and the blood of the boy for four days." Now, in a case of really poor timing, only four days after killing the cabin boy, they were picked up by a passing ship. Now, this particular fact isn't in the case itself, but I do love the sensationalism of it. One of the sources I read said that they were found with human flesh under their fingernails and the remains of Richard Parker strewn across the bottom of the boat. So just take a brief second to picture sailing up on your boat and coming across that. Pretty gross, but I'm sure they were glad they were rescued anyway. So after they were taken in by this passing boat, they were brought back to England, and Stevens and Dudley were immediately charged with murder. Brooks got off scot-free because, yeah, he did eat some of the body, but he didn't actually participate in killing him, and he objected to it. It's an important distinction. So he was not a murderer, even though, yes, due to the situation, he was a cannibal. What always strikes me as super strange about this case is that you would think a pair of sailors that ate a 17-year-old boy would not be very popular in the public opinion, but people were totally on their side. We've got to remember that this was a different time in history, and this was actually sort of a thing. People understood that if you got stranded at sea, you did what you had to do to survive. They were definitely sympathetic characters to the English public. And that's why our sailors didn't even try and hide what they did when they were rescued. They thought that what they call the custom of the sea would protect them. And they had a reason to think that. There's actually some legal precedent. In the 17th century, uh, there were some stranded sailors who, when they realized that they were going to die if they didn't eat, voted on who to kill and who to eat, did so, and were completely pardoned since the judge decided that they had killed out of absolute necessity. And in an American case, US v. Holmes, a crew member was charged with murder because after a shipwreck, he was worried the lifeboat they were in might sink since there were so many people in it, so he just kind of chucked a dozen people overboard to die. Now, he was eventually convicted of a lesser charge, manslaughter, and given a cursory six-month sentence and a $20 fine, sort of a slap on the wrist for sending 12 people to their death. So Dudley and Stevens really did have a reason to think that they would be totally fine because of this established concept of necessity. Killing not for kicks, but because you will die if you don't kill that person. But this time it was different. Leading up to this case, the English legal system had actually been trying to codify its criminal laws, basically define standards in written laws that courts could follow, And they really couldn't make up their minds on whether necessity was actually a good excuse for murder, and in this case, cannibalism. So, both the judge and the prosecutors in this case saw this as a big opportunity to use the common law, or law created in courtrooms, to settle this matter once and for all. And they got a little too excited. The original judge actually wanted to convict so badly that he completely steamrolled the jury, did not give them a chance to rule, wrote a special judgment that they just had to agree with with silence, and when some of them objected to parts of it, ignored their objections, and then finally actually altered the legal record when he realized that he had gotten some of the facts wrong in a way that really didn't help him out. So after all of this came to light, the case was retried, and it fell to a panel of judges to decide, is necessity actually a justification for murder? In the end, their answer was no. Necessity isn't an excuse in a legal or a moral sense. In fact, the court's decisions seem to hinge on the moral judgment more than the legal one. Listen to this passage from their opinion. To preserve one's life is generally speaking a duty, but it may be the plainest and the highest duty to sacrifice it. War is full of instances in which it is a man's duty not to live, but to die. The duty, in case of shipwreck, of a captain to his crew, of the crew member to the passengers, of soldiers to women and children. These duties impose on men the moral necessity, not of the preservation, but of the sacrifice of their lives for others, from which in no country, least of all in England, men will ever shrink. Now, that's a pretty high standard to live up to, and it's not one that English soldiers or English sailors had necessarily been living up to in the past. And in fact, the judges recognized that they were setting what was a standard that they couldn't guarantee in the same situation they themselves would follow. But they felt that making the moral judgment that this was how you had to act was really important. They needed the English courts to say, we're not going to condone it if you think that your life is so important that you're willing to kill and eat someone else to preserve it. They also dove into the lawyer's favorite way to argue in circles, which is the slippery slope. Cases like this are tricky because we get into deciding who gets to live and who gets to die. Where do we draw the line? In our 17th century case, the men in the boat voted on who got to die and be eaten. In this case, the cabin boy didn't get a say. Should that make a difference? Who gets to pick which people in the boat are the least important and which people should serve as food? And if we take it further, which we always do because, again, lawyers, this could be a pretty easy smokescreen to hide behind, which is a problem we see sometimes today with self-defense cases. Now, that's a whole can of worms, you know, we don't want to open up today. Looking at all of these arguments, the panel of judges gave Dudley and Stevens the death penalty, affirmatively saying that necessity is not an excuse for murder. Now, of course, as I mentioned, these men really had the public opinion on their sides, so this verdict went over very badly. Dudley and Stevens were actually given a royal pardon, and in the end, they only served about six months of their sentence. But Dudley and Stevens themselves aren't really the point of this case. The point is, at least for our purposes here, that our common law, which is the law we develop based on cases, is not a clear-cut linear thing. And you'll see a lot of people portray it that way, especially an armchair lawyer on a Facebook argument, but perhaps a better way to think of it is sort of a wobbly, badly constructed pile of rocks. Each case decided on a concept like necessity is thrown on the pile, and then we decide our future cases based on what kind of shape that pile takes. So cases like this one seem crazy. I mean, we're dealing with two people who ate another human being, but it's about more than that. It's more than just a a, a cautionary tale against sailing and snacking on cabin boys. It's actually a component of our common law and something that shapes the future of our legal cases, and not only our cases, but our behavior. Future sailors can think about this decision and tailor how they act in scenarios. And this is the case with cases that aren't, you know, about big crazy things like cannibalism. It's how we shape our society and what our values are. And for me at least, this is the fun part of learning about the law. You learn enough of these tiny little rocks and you start to see how the whole pile comes together and how its shape is more intentional than you thought. Hopefully that's what we'll do here together every week. But, you know, hey, if you're not into that, feel free to just tune in to hear a bunch of crazy stories about the weird shit that people do. Like eating each other. On that cheerful note, that's it for this week. Next week, we'll be discussing a case called Nix v. Hedden that will show us how words really mean nothing. If you've got cases you'd like to hear about or just want to tell me that this podcast is terrible, you can email me at tortsillustratedpodcasts at gmail.com. Again, that's Torts Illustrated podcast at gmail.com. Until next week, this has been Torts Illustrated. I'm your host, Marie, asking that when you kill all the lawyers, please spare me.